Before we begin, we just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode contains references to suicide. I'm, I'm on my bed going, if this ratchets up and I die, they're going to write this off as a heart attack or an aneurysm. Like, there's no, there's clearly nothing that's going to leave any signs or whatever it is. I can't believe you've never been out of Philly, Charlie. It's December 29th, 2016. Tony, whom we've learned was an undercover CIA officer stationed in Havana, is home, trying to catch up on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia on his laptop. when suddenly he hears a loud noise. A noise that just won't go away. He's in a lot of pain now, but he's trying to bear it because he thinks that this is an attack and that whoever is doing it is watching him and he doesn't want to show weakness. I was starting to reach my limit at that point. Now there's pain and stuff happening. There may actually be some something happening to me here. Um, and then I started blacking out from it. What worried me about going completely unconscious is that if this thing kept going, I didn't know what I was going to end up as or if I would even come to from it. And so I rolled off my bed, hit the ground, kind of jolted me out of whatever it was for the most part. Like, I still could feel it. It still hurt, but I wasn't in that, like, blackout tunnel anymore. And I got out of my bedroom, ran down the hallway, and went into my kitchen. Once I was in the kitchen, it was more of like, am I still in it? I couldn't hear anything. I would talk to myself and I could feel the vibration in my chest, but I couldn't hear anything. And so then you do a head to toe assessment and you go, do I feel pressure? Do I feel pain? Well, there's residual pain, but this, my head's not in a vice anymore. I must be out of it. And so I decided at that point, well, not staying in my room anymore, right? Like, I, I can't go to sleep in that. And I spent the rest of the night on the couch, just in pain, not really being able to sleep and reading closed captions on on, on the shows and all, Always Sunny, just praying for the sun to come up. The next morning, he's not feeling the acute pain anymore, but he decides to tell his bosses about the incident. He's worried about what his bosses will think. He's a rookie. This is his first covert assignment, and he doesn't want the more hardcore CIA bureau chiefs to think he was weak or soft or couldn't take the pressure. I was still pretty new down there at this point, right? And now I'm coming forth going, hey, some crazy sounds in my house and now my head hurts. Like, it... It doesn't look great, <laughs> frankly. And so I didn't want to report it. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was report it, but I'm also torn with my obligation um, to report what's happening. So Tony sends his bosses in both the State Department and Langley a report detailing what happened. But that doesn't stop the noise. Every time he goes home, it starts up again. And he keeps getting these painful physical reactions to it. I would still wake up in pools of blood, 
like Jesus. gushing out of my nose. Couldn't stop it until I was out and down through the house somewhere else, multiple times. Just like just pouring out head pressure, head pain. Like I never have bloody noses ever, but I would wake up just pools of it um, with this crazy head pressure and pain. These debilitating events are all starting to have other impacts too. I could normally write a cable in an hour. It would be a couple pages. I would walk away, come back 20 minutes later, edit, send, done. That same thing would take me four, six, eight hours. But you would come back to edit and it would be completely incoherent, like beyond incoherent. Um, I would ask the guys that I was working with to come in and be like, hey, can you read this? What is this? What, what was I even trying to say here? And they'd be like, I have no idea. Like it's complete nonsensical words mashed together that didn't even make a coherent sentence. I was at the top physical, psychological, emotional place I could have ever been in my life. And I was gung-ho to do my job. And within six months, I was a zombie and non-functional as a human being. I'm John Lee Anderson. And I'm Adam Entis. From Vice World News, this is Havana Syndrome. Sir, your name is? Yeah, Steve Dorsey from CBS News. Hi, Steve. Um, hi. Um, just a quick change in topic. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about the incidents that have been going on in Havana affecting U.S. government workers there? Yes. Um, so we are certainly aware of what has happened there. Um, give me one second here. August 2017. Seven months after Tony's incident, the American government finally acknowledges for the first time there's been a series of mysterious health incidents affecting their personnel in Havana. They've uh, reported some incidents which have caused a variety of physical symptoms. And how long has this been going on for? So we first heard about these incidents back in late 2016. We asked the State Department why they chose to keep quiet about these incidents in those early weeks and months. They told us, our standing practice is not to discuss specific individuals or events due to privacy concerns as well as for security reasons. My understanding is that it has only affected State Department employees. And of course, the State Department doesn't mention that any CIA officers are involved. The U.S. government has a rule. They don't talk about CIA officers overseas. We take this very seriously. Look, this. This incident, this what incident. incident, and that's what that's what we're calling it. We don't know exactly uh, what. Since 2016, and you don't know what this incident is. What this requires is uh, providing medical uh, examinations to these people initially when they started reporting what I will just call symptoms. It took time to figure out what it was, and this is still ongoing. By the time the news goes public, Tony has reached a breaking point. After heading back to the U.S. to try to get better, he still has no answers. 
you know, my health's deteriorating, my vision's deteriorating. I have migraines that just are permanent. They won't stop. You know, you look at yourself and you go, am I, is this, is this life now? And I thought, how can I go from this pinnacle of a person that I was and within such a short period of time, within a year, have ended up crawling around with migraines in dark rooms, not able to drive, can't see straight. How did I end up here? He goes back to his supervisors at Langley, asks for help, but says he's still pretty much on his own at this point. Tony says he's feeling like a pariah, ignored by the CIA. We'll get into that more in a later episode. But it's that combination of factors that brings Tony to almost do something drastic. Everything went to shit. And I said, all right, you're done. That's fine. Check out. Like, I think I'm done. I, th- I think I've, I've given it everything now. I think that this part of my story is over. And so, you know, I made plans to kill myself at that point. And so I started making plans. You know, you write your letters to family. I think I kind of sat there and before kind of making that ultimate choice, I, I kind of gave myself a chat. You know, you do kind of like in Havana, you do a head to toe uh, assessment. You go, all right, where, like, before, before you're here, before you make this that you can't come back from, what are you going to do? And, and I gave myself an out. I go, you have just a little bit left in you. Push. Use all that up, and in a week, if you're, you're still here, we're still on the floor, we're still fucked, you're allowed to go. He hadn't told us everything. That's Tony's brother. You know, we knew it had been a bit of a shit show, and they hadn't believed him, and, and it was hard getting treatment, and no one knew what it was and, and what have you. But at that point, you know, we... Like, I'm learning a lot today, <laughs> you know, so... Did you know that he was thinking about killing himself? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. This isn't unique. I've talked, like, I can't tell, like, there's been more than a handful of phone calls where I've talked friends from take, pulling guns out of their mouths. I've sent people over to homes to pull weapons out of people's homes because we've all been in such a dark place and we didn't get the support that we needed. Multiple. That's so fucked up. Yeah. And so, gave myself a week. And within two days after that moment, I got a call from one of the doctors at work and said, we've got you under UPenn. The whole team's going to see you. Um, <laughs> I get emotional because... And so I went up to Penn and um, went through everything with them and... They go, what the fuck happened to you? 
Before the news of Havana Syndrome goes public in August 2017, the number of U.S. spies and diplomats who've become afflicted has risen to almost two dozen people. Almost all of them say they've experienced an incident at home or in a hotel in which they feel a directional pressure at their heads, one that didn't go away unless they got off the X. Many of the spies and diplomats that experienced this also heard a sound during their incidents. Afterwards, many of them felt dizzy and foggy. They're having trouble even keeping their balance. And now they're having trouble keeping up at work. Finally, in February 2017, the CIA and State Department reach out to a prominent ear, nose, and throat doctor based in Miami. After studying these patients, the doctor suspects that they're actually suffering from a brain injury, which ends up causing a lot of drama within the CIA. We'll get to that later in the series. But government officials soon realize they need a plan to help treat all these patients at once. And so they reach out to another doctor who specializes in brain trauma. So I'm uh, Douglas Smith. I'm a professor of neurosurgery and director of the Center for Brain Injury and Repair at the University of Pennsylvania. I was curious how you got involved in the first place in Havana Syndrome. Like, do you know the origin story of your involvement? Yeah, to some extent. So I, I got a strange email. <laughs> it's like I was wondering if somebody wanted me to, you know, accept $20 million from my bank account type of thing. One day in the summer of 2017, Dr. Smith gets an email with a strange request. Do you remember what the email said? Did it suggest a phone call or did it actually say, you know, what actually was going on down in Havana? No, it didn't mention anything about Havana. And it just said, this is going to sound a little weird, you know, but, yeah, but we might need your help or something, uh, and give me a call. I know that the person who emailed Dr. Smith worked for the CIA, but of course the CIA won't confirm that for me. Did you realize that this was in, you were entering like a world of espionage, or was it, were you oblivious to that until you got more involved? Yeah, I, I really didn't know what it was about. And, um, you know, people call me up a lot. You know, anybody who's been around for a while, you serve on, you know, panels of you know, expert panels or whatnot. Um, and so I really didn't know what was up. And I had some information. And Dr. Smith is well known in his field, particularly for his work studying professional football players with head injuries. As the world is learning of Havana syndrome, he's starting to see affected spies and diplomats at his office. Morale was definitely being affected. People were very nervous. Back in Havana by this point, Tina has come clean to her husband and colleagues about her own incident in her kitchen the previous March. Like Tony, she's still suffering from a variety of symptoms. But by the time she comes forward, the U.S. ambassador, Jeffrey De Laurentiis, has already been dealing with the CIA cases for months. And I think everybody saw how I looked. My boss, the consul general, called it the elephant in the room because I wasn't talking about it with anyone, but I looked like a zombie. I looked like absolute crap. And De Laurentiis, by that point, was really, really worried. He said, we're working on this. We're going to get you help. We're going to fix this. And I remember him saying those words. And um, that might be why I was the first one to end up at Pennsylvania. It may have been a coincidence. But on August 20th, I was in Philadelphia. Before Tina and her cohort arrive, Dr. Smith gathers a team of specialists together to try to do a gut check. What do they think is going on here? They don't have a lot to go on. 
Yeah, so right down the hall here, we we met before the patients came. At that meeting, uh, we just had to kind of take out, uh, and we're just sitting around, and everybody's like, what do you think this is? And I think that at that time, I think the majority of folks really thought there was nothing here. they just like, well, we'll do this. I mean, we're being asked, and we want to, you know, do our part, but this doesn't really make any sense. When they walked through the door, did you say to yourself, oh, yes, uh, this person has had a a brain injury, or did they have a common look? Did they, did they look dazed and confused? Or, or was it not until you examined them and put them through your medical procedures that you could see? Or did they look desperate? <laughs> wow, what a good word. I think some of them were desperate. You know, many of them, these are very high achiever folks who really want to do well at their jobs, but you know, often could not concentrate for very long, couldn't work a full day had terrible headaches, you know, just had this, you know, brain fog, you know, kind of, um, you know, word finding issues, you know, just be sitting there for a minute trying to think of that word. Do you count yourself as one of the people who thought there was nothing there? Or were I, before I met anybody, any of the patients, I had a, a sense that there could be something there. They just seemed like very believable patients. These patients are very good historians about their symptoms and cause of that. As far as any theory about what it was, that was completely unknown. At first, the doctors really didn't have much information besides the symptoms the patients were reporting. Dr. Smith had hoped he would get some blood samples. Because when certain cells in the brain are damaged, they release a type of protein into the bloodstream that can be detected. This is how specialists can diagnose some types of concussions. Hoping to collect physiological evidence to support the victim's accounts, the CIA arranged for the medical staff at the embassy to draw blood from some of the patients. And those samples were stashed in a fridge in the basement of the U.S. Embassy before they would be secretly flown to a lab in the U.S. for analysis. The hope was that those tests would detect these special proteins, hard evidence that the brains of the victims were damaged in some way. Unfortunately, the serum that was in Cuba, uh, we had, we were just in the process of having it shipped to Penn, but a hurricane got in the way. We never got it. We asked the CIA about what happened there, but they wouldn't respond. In any case, it's far from ideal for the UPenn doctors. There was no baselining done of the patients before their injuries to assess if or how their conditions changed. There was no physical evidence, at least on the surface, of a wound or an injury. They didn't get the blood samples, so the doctors had to make do. They talked to all the patients about their incidents. Some felt like they had been in a beam of energy. The majority of them heard a sound. Some didn't. It's pretty confusing. Tony after his incident. This thing was 20 plus minutes of straight line, singular, non-adjusting tone that was either an artifact or a byproduct or was part of it, I don't know. Probably the majority who said they heard a sound, it was more like a cicada-like. But other descriptions of the sound really varied. Or high kind of whine, like a, you know, just before an alarm in your house goes off, that high-pitched noise that noise when you have the back window of your car open, you're going down the highway, kind of that baffling wah 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 noise. Others said there was like a grinding, you know, low metal grinding noise. 
And then there was still some that heard nothing. So it was a little bit all over the place. So then they put Tony, Tina, and the rest of their cohort through a battery of tests. What are they physically making you do or doing to you? Yeah. Um, a lot of those initial tests had to do with movement and with eye movement. So how was our balance? Could we stand on one foot on the floor? Could we close our eyes and stay standing without falling over? Could we track a finger with our eyes? Did our eyes work together? Could they converge and diverge, as we know now, is, is kind of a big part of this. The vestibular testing is, is probably the most interesting. That's the system in the inner ear that helps with balance. You're in basically a dark, a completely pitch dark enclosed room. Sometimes they're just following your eye movements with sensors. Other times you're actually playing an active role. You're trying to straighten lines with a little joystick. Or you're trying to follow lines around the, around the black interior. And one other important thing. The chair spins as well. So just to add an element of vomit to all of this, uh, <laughs> have to have a spinning chair. Um, I've never thrown up so much in my life. The most unpleasant test, they flush this stream of water into your ear, and it's super hard and super fast. This is caloric reflex testing. Rushing water spinning around in your ear. Which checks for issues with balance. And that was awful. I thought I was, like, having morning sickness. Am I pregnant again? This is terrible. I felt so sick. And then somehow it magically drains out. I just remember being so ill that night. I just could not get my balance back. I was staggering back to the hotel. I wasn't walking right. So if I didn't have vestibular problems, I did after that test. All of the doctors involved made sure not to discuss with one another what they were finding or hearing from the patients during the testing so as not to influence their independent judgment. After seeing a, a, the first series of patients, we met back in the same conference room down the hall, and we called kind of the reveal. So basically, it's like, so what do you think? And uh, one member spoke up, and he said, this is real. He said, I'm just kind of surprised, but there really is a neurological issue here. And then one by one, everybody who had examined these patients felt there was something there, that this was a, really a neurological issue. So now Dr. Smith starts asking, what could have happened to cause this? We looked at things like uh, insecticides. There are certain types of toxins or poisons. Um, and, you know, you can absolutely get uh, brain injury from these damage to the brain, but it does not seem to manifest this way and it doesn't quite look like this. And you might have... He also rules out that this is some kind of infection. Uh, you know, that really wouldn't make sense to be directional. The waxing and waning of symptoms as a duck behind a wall... <laughs> You know, I don't know many infections that go away when you duck behind the wall and then come back, they come back. So that history doesn't really fit for that kind of a toxin or infection type of issue. And as for the sound many of the patients reported hearing? You know, that we, from the beginning, didn't think the sounds had anything to do with brain injury or hurting the brain because sound cannot hurt their brain. So, Dr. Smith says, the patient's symptoms couldn't be the result of some sort of attack using sound Sound may have accompanied whatever happened, but it couldn't be the cause. 
certainly at a loud enough you know volume can hurt your hearing so sound can drive people off but again that's you know it wasn't a hearing issue and sound itself really shouldn't injure the brain okay interesting this felt like a revelation to all of us during that interview personally i had no idea that sound couldn't hurt the brain it also means that what these people experienced could not have been caused by sound or some kind of sonic device But according to Dr. Smith, the symptoms these patients have do all remind him of something, something he's treated for a long time now. This really sounds like concussion. A concussion is a form of traumatic brain injury, or TBI. And what happens in a concussion is kind of fascinating and complex. In part, it involves a particular component of neurons in your brain called axons. So axons are these really tiny electrical fibers, basically. They're the electric grid of the brain that connect one part of the brain to the other. But they're so small and delicate, you take about a hundred of those side by side to be as wide as a human hair. Jeez. So in a concussion, the axons are, the tissue that they're in gets shifted. So as your brain gets rapidly deformed, kind of changes shape, the axons get stretched. Um, Normally they can tolerate a pretty big stretch. But under something that's very dynamic, something very rapid, that pulls them very fast, something inside actually breaks. And what breaks is really what transports the protein. It's like the train tracks inside this tiny structure, and they can physically break at the moment of injury. So usually, the way neurons in your brain communicate with each other involves a wave of electrical charge. It's really fast and really intense. This wave creates a spark of electricity that then becomes an electrical current that travels up to 100 meters per second to the end of the axon, which triggers the release of chemical neurotransmitters. And that's how you can transmit a signal down the axon from one part of your brain to the other. But in traumatic brain injury, this kind of acts like a, think of like the toilet tank. (laughs) You're dripping at night, it's driving you crazy. You open up the lid and you see this flapper valve is open and the water just keeps pouring in. When you have an injury, instead of just laying the right amount, the Goldilocks amount of sodium in to create that spark and then stop, it just keeps kind of pouring in. So this makes it so it cannot have another spark. And so we think that that's fundamentally what causes individuals to be kind of dazed and confused that they can't get the right electrical signals. And then on top of that, you get these swellings of these axons. And they swell, if they swell past a certain point, they'll disconnect. And once they disconnect, they're gone forever. You cannot grow an axon across the brain again. Okay, so that's what happens in a concussion. But usually something physically has to happen to you. Say you fall and hit your head, or have a 300-pound man run full speed into you on a football field. And that didn't happen to any of these Havana syndrome patients. Right. But Dr. Smith says you don't actually have to hit your head to have a concussion. In a car accident, if you're restrained with a seatbelt, your head might rotate and actually not hit anything. But that's enough to cause the brain to change shape rapidly, just like if you hit your head. And so you can have a concussion with no blow to your head, no bruises or anything. But in the case of these spies and diplomats in Havana, Dr. Smith has no idea what caused their concussion-like symptoms. This really is a novel illness, 
something that no one on Dr. Smith's team has seen before. As they were being examined, the patients themselves kind of took on, the, you know, despite all this, this suffering, they had a sense of humor and, and they called it immaculate concussion. They called it themselves. <laughs> immaculate concussion. Can you see that? Like, can the human eye just looking at a brain, would you be able to see any of these things you're talking about? And if so, what, what would that look like? You actually can't. So this is something that's so small, you need a microscope, and you can't stuff a microscope into somebody's living brain. Um, but what we can do neuroimaging. We call it advanced neuroimaging or diffusion MRI. And the MRI allows us to look at these tracks, these pathways that the axon form in the white matter, and determine... The Dr. Smith used these MRIs to peer into the patient's brains, and what he saw was abnormal. But again, he had nothing to compare them to. These patients did not have MRIs before they left for Havana. So it was impossible to know how their axons had changed. The best they could do is compare the patient's MRI results with quote-unquote normal brains. There was a change in the tracks, the connectivity across these tracks through a lot of the brain. That doesn't tell us that there's a bunch of broken axons there necessarily. That just tells us there's a change. Which is important, but this isn't a definitive diagnosis of anything. You know, I would predict that there was damage to axons, a change in the axons. But, uh, you know, fortunately, we don't have any of those patients' brains. Uh, so we really don't know. We, we just can only surmise, looking at the imaging, that the axons were affected. Even though they aren't able to make a specific diagnosis, the doctors at UPenn have no doubt that they are dealing with something real. And in March 2018, seven months after examining their first set of patients, Dr. Smith's team publishes a peer-reviewed study announcing their findings. The doctors say the patients in Havana appear to have a new kind of brain network disorder with symptoms similar to traumatic brain injury or a concussion. As for what would cause this, the doctors say they don't know, but that it appeared to come from a, quote, directional exposure of undetermined etiology. It's the first time a group of medical professionals is saying publicly, hey, we studied this, it's real, something happened. They don't say it bluntly, but because of the directionality of the experience, it implies that injuries were caused by some sort of device that is being aimed at the targets. Which was huge, but also still vague. Ultimately, the UPenn study did less to solve the mystery and instead created more questions. That's after the break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So you wouldn't think a straightforward medical report out of the University of Pennsylvania would stir up a lot of controversy, but it did. But before we can explain why this finding from UPenn upset people, you have to understand what had been going on between the U.S. and Cuba. Keep in mind that at this point, March 2018, we're still only a few years into the historic restoration of ties between Cuba and the U.S. The embassies were reopened, yes, but things had gotten complicated in part because... President Donald Trump. Donald Trump was now president. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Great honor, and thank you to... The first incidents had been reported during the transition from Obama to Trump, who during the campaign sent mixed messages about Cuba. Privately, he told Obama that he supported his policy changes. And thank you to Miami. We love Miami. But later, publicly, he slammed the deal. Effective immediately, I am canceling the last administration's completely one-sided deal with Cuba. And after Trump took office, he effectively handed over U.S. policy on Cuba to Senator Marco Rubio, who was an outspoken critic of the opening and of the Cuban government in general. And so there was very little interest on the U.S. side in continuing efforts to bring the two countries together. But as American officials start to wrap their heads around the sheer volume of bizarre health anomalies their people are experiencing in Cuba, they start to pay more attention. Early on, Ambassador De Laurentiis reaches out to his counterpart in Cuba, saying, you guys need to cut this out. But the Cubans insist they have nothing to do with it. The president of Cuba himself, Raul Castro, actually meets with De Laurentiis to try to convince him not only are the Cubans not fucking with the Americans, but that they want to help solve whatever this is. Raul says, it isn't us. But the Americans don't trust the Cubans to be honest participants in an investigation. And they can't tell whether it's true that they know nothing or whether they are in fact perpetrating the incidents or possibly helping someone else carry them out. An additional possibility is that some kind of rogue faction in the Cuban government opposed to the opening with the Americans went out on their own on this, and that the Cuban leadership knows about it, but can't tell the Americans that they don't have full control over the island. By the time news of Havana syndrome goes public, what little trust may have been there has evaporated. Until this point, the Americans had been trying to secretly deal with the mystery themselves. But now that it was public, they had to respond. But that means all the subtlety is thrown out the window. Now the Trump administration, which has already signaled politically that they want to roll back the relationship with Cuba, has to convince a domestic audience that they're not only taking it seriously, but responding. Which means that they have to act like they know a lot more than they actually do. Thank you, Mr. President. General Kelly said on uh, just last week that you believe that Cuba could 
stop the attacks against Americans. Do you believe then that Cuba I do, is I think Cuba, do you do about Cuba it. is responsible? Sure. I do believe Cuba is responsible. I do believe that. We hold the Cuban authorities responsible for finding out who is uh, carrying out these health attacks. Hardliner sees on this, saying Cuba needs to be isolated. We can say that we don't know how it happened. We can even say we can't know for sure who did it. But two things we know for sure. People were hurt, and the Cuban government knows who did it. But the Cuban government insists to the U.S. and to the world that if something were happening on their turf, they would know about it. Cuba says it has never used nor allowed its territory to be used to attack diplomats. The Cuban government decides to launch its own investigation into the matter. They don't have access to the patients, though they do have access to other potential evidence from the island, including a leaked audio recording made public by the Associated Press. The Cubans say that the sound on the recording is likely just a cricket. And so when the UPenn study comes out, calling this a brain network disorder, Cuba pounces on it, makes fun of the study, and suggests that it's full of holes. We spoke to one of the Cuban scientists, Mitchell Joseph Valdez Sosa, who said it's possible these patients had head injuries prior to coming to Cuba. And to be fair, there is controversy over this because a lot of people do have brain abnormalities. They can be common. He also argued that some of these patients seemed to become ill after they'd heard rumors of their colleagues getting sick on the island. Dr. Valdez Sosa was hinting that maybe this was not the result of any kind of attack or illness at all, but perhaps a bad case of gringo hysteria. There's an actual term for what the Cubans are implying here, mass psychogenic illness. That's when a group of people all hear about an alleged threat, like a poison or a virus, and then they start to feel like they're sick and come down with real symptoms, even if they haven't actually been exposed to any threat at all. This is a condition that's been documented for centuries. Psychologists used to call this mass hysteria. The word hysteria comes from the Greek for uterus, and the Greeks and Egyptians had this thing about how the womb could cause women's psychological problems. Anyway, it's now understood to be pretty sexist. Historians believe that that is what caused the young women and girls in Salem, Massachusetts, to start violently twitching and screaming en masse, which ultimately led to the Salem witch trials. But instances of mass psychogenic illness have been documented more recently as well. They're quite common, especially in places of high stress, like schools with strict rules and repressive workplaces. Recently, some doctors found that kids watching TikTok videos of people with the symptoms of Tourette's syndrome started to feel those same symptoms. Remember, this is a very closely knit community, largely isolated from the Cuban community, with very close ties. People like Cuban doctor Valdez Sosa point out that some of these diplomats in Havana, including Tina, may have been swept up in the rumor mill. And this gives you all the conditions for the psychogenic propagation of this sort of a amplification of concern about diseases. And to be fair, an embassy can be something of a fishbowl. Now, Dr. Smith disagrees with those who say that the Cuban patients were suffering from mass psychogenic illness. Unlike Tina, most of the patients during their initial incidents weren't aware that anyone else was getting sick. He also says these symptoms would be impossible to fake. 
In mass hysteria, it's just like you have to be essentially kind of contaminated or influenced by somebody else with the same symptoms so that you can empathize or subconsciously take on those symptoms. That doesn't work here. It doesn't work at all because many of these patients had never met the other patients. Mm. They just independently had the same kind of history of some kind of exposure. And then they had these symptoms, but independently described kind of the same type of story without ever seeing another patient. But it's not just the Cuban government pushing this theory. So the details are sketchy. I've been working with a lawyer named Mark Zaid, and we filed a lawsuit seeking access to documents about the government's investigation. I've actually gotten a lot of documents back, but almost all the pages are so redacted they're completely black. What I really want to see is a report by the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. They concluded, without having interviewed any of the victims themselves, that the patients suffered from mass psychogenic illness. We asked the FBI for a copy of the report, but they declined to provide it. And some American medical professionals have also questioned the UPenn study. And what really struck me was how nonspecific the symptoms were. Adam Gaffney, he's a pulmonologist at Harvard Medical School. These sorts of symptom complexes that are described are very common in the general population. He studies lungs, not brains, but his criticism is focused on the scientific methodology of the study. As I said, there could be many different things. There could be undiagnosed medical conditions among some individuals, for all we know, right? Um, there could be simply what we would refer to as medically unexplained symptoms, which are a very common issue in primary care. A substantial portion of patients, um, you know, as any primary care physician will tell you, often have symptoms that, that can't easily be tied to a particular diagnosis. It doesn't mean the symptoms aren't real. It doesn't mean their suffering's not real. It doesn't mean it's not biological. It just means that we don't understand it. Fair enough. There are a lot of unexplained and undiagnosed physical and psychological ailments that can affect the human body. With all due respect, though, these experts who came out against the UPenn study had no access to the patients in Havana. It would be like me writing a story about this without interviewing anyone. You have to do some legwork. I don't know of any psychiatric issues that kind of look like what you have with traumatic brain injury. It doesn't mean it could never happen, but this is kind of a, a unique disruption of the brain's networks, you know, not certain regions, just, you know, solitary regions of the brain. There's something called curbside medicine. You know, a couple of physicians, they see each other on the, you know, passing on the sidewalk, and they say, hey, I have this patient, whatever. But if you didn't examine the patient or know whatever, it's just a, a, just a very vague opinion. A famous quote from Faraday is that there's no one quite so frightening as somebody who is sure they're correct. And, uh, and just seeing so many reports, quotes from individuals who were absolutely certain that this was psychological, for example, or something else, and that people were just making it up or, or that they were making it up for a political reason, I didn't understand that. I, I've never seen that before. And, and, uh, and the harm that it does to the patients just doesn't make any sense to me either. So we're a little further along. It seems clear, at least as far as the doctors who examined these patients are concerned, that something has happened to these people's brains. But we still don't know what did it, or who. Which is why we decided to go back to where this all began, my favorite city in the world. Oh, 
next time, we head to Cuba to follow up on some leads. Okay, so mm-hmm. what just happened? So we drove into Tina's neighborhood onto her street, which is in a highly secure area. And when we turned around and went back, I think we picked up a tail. Havana Syndrome is hosted and reported by Adam Entus and me, John Lee Anderson. It's produced and reported by Julia Nutter, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, and Ramon Campos Iriarte, and edited and executive produced by Annie Aviles and Kate Osborne, with original composition and sound design by Steve Bone. 